Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. I am Mohammed Al-Wa'ali. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. In the late hours of March 31st, the Iraqi parliament finally passed the 2021 federal budget. The budget this year is about $90 billion, of which $70 billion is dedicated to current expenditure and about $20 million for capital spending. The deficit, about $20 billion, is one of the largest ever. My guest, Hassan Haddad, an economist, and Ali Al-Mawlawi, a political analyst, will dissect the issues surrounding the budget and its impact on Iraq's political, social, and economic conditions. Welcome, Ali, and welcome, Hassan. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Ali, what are the most interesting features of this budget? I think one of the biggest issues relates to jobs, and this budget increases public employment quite significantly, although we don't have the exact figures yet because the detailed breakdown of the budget numbers hasn't been published yet. Um, But we do know that the government's version of the budget proposed adding more than 300,000 people to the public payroll. And I think this is both a function of Iraq's dire economic situation and the fact that elections may be around the corner. Um, So there are hundreds of thousands of young people demanding government jobs, And this budget is really a reflection of the political pressures on the ruling elite to absorb as many young graduates into the public sector as possible, um, both to contain public anger and for the purposes of expanding patronage. The other issue is the KIG revenue sharing deal, which I think is slightly different to ones from previous years. And then I'd say another big issue is the fact that not all revenues are highly inflated. And I really don't have an explanation for how the drafters of the bill think, you know, they can generate nearly $14 billion in non-all revenues. Um, But we'll have to wait and see what the breakdown of that figure looks like. Thanks, Ali. Um, Hassan, can you tell us why there has been such a huge delay in passing the budget? What were the biggest issues? First, I think there was a gap between the two branches of government involved in this process. The executive branch did, in fact, take its time drafting the 2021 budget because it incorporated some of the principles of the white paper for economic reform, which we've heard so much about. Number two, what we saw is basically a difference in the mentalities in these two branches of government. And so the Finance Committee in Parliament does not necessarily subscribe to the same economic philosophies that Finance Minister Ali Alawi subscribed to. And so what we saw is basically the rewriting of the budget by the legislative branch, more or less, making the first draft handed to Parliament by the cabinet almost useless. This, along with horse trading, is what led to Parliament taking three months to rewrite and pass the budget law. Interesting. So you mentioned the white paper. And to clarify to those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the white paper, the white paper is a policy document authored by the Iraqi government last fall that highlighted what needs to be done to get Iraq out of its financial crisis. So the white paper was no-nonsense and conveyed a clear sense of urgency when it comes to the need of reform. Then when the Iraqi government drafted the budget, it did so based on the principles highlighted in the white paper, or at least this is what it claimed to have done. Minister Alawi even referred to the draft budget as a reform budget, not an austerity budget. But as you said, Hassan, the budget approved by parliament has changed a lot from the original draft. When we look at the budget now, how much of the white paper's recommendations are reflected? What do you think, Hassan? I think, yes, there have been uh, some incorporations, but not all. So first, a couple of things to unpack. 
Number one, we didn't have a 2020 budget. So we need to compare the 2021 budget to the 2019 budget. This is due to several factors, including the protest movement, the resignation of Adil Abdel Mahdi's government, the inauguration of the Qadhmi government. So there were all sorts of things that led to 2020 being a year in which Iraq did not have a federal budget. Number two, in terms of the principles of the white paper, there are some things, including the devaluation of the Iraqi dinar. There's a great emphasis placed on the increase in non-oil revenues, so the executive branch of government can actually start working on that. And that, of course, is something that in the final draft that was passed by Parliament was in fact changed. So some principles of the white paper were put into the federal budget that was given to Parliament. Ali, do you have any comments to add here? Yeah, so I'd say there were some modest attempts by the government to reflect some of the aspirations of the white paper. Um, so they introduced what is known as program budgeting um, to some aspects of the budget, um, which is basically a more strategic way of allocating funds as opposed to the traditional line budgeting approach. Um, and then also by introducing a new progressive income tax for public employees. Basically, at the moment, people's base salaries are taxed, but the idea was to expand that to include taxing benefits, uh, particularly for those in the mid and high pay brackets. And also they wanted to tax pensions. Now, this would have generated something like $3.5 billion in extra revenue, but Parliament, in fact, completely erased Article 20, which deals with income tax proposals. Um, but oddly enough, the amount of projected non-all revenue remained the same, um, which really begs the question, how does Parliament think that the government will generate those revenues without targeting income tax? Now, maybe what they envisage is getting more revenues from customs, but that's easier said than done, and these projections really should be grounded in reality. Um, they shouldn't be just aspirational. The decision makers in Iraq tried to tackle the huge deficit by devaluating the dinar. And I have written an article about this for Iraqi Thoughts, and uh, I will add the link to this in the description. However, um, here I must add that the government and the parliament tried to influence this change, although strictly speaking, it's the responsibility of the central bank to decide on the exchange rate, independent from political pressure. Nevertheless, devaluation has been a political issue that was hotly debated in the executive and legislative branches. Hassan, can you summarize, if possible, given that this is a very complicated issue, the current debate over it and what's going on there? So from an economic standpoint, the devaluation of the dinar is something that has been discussed for years, actually. It's nothing new to the current government. However, for political and mostly mafioso reasons, nothing was really done about it. And we just stuck with the status quo of one U.S. dollar equaling 1,180 Iraqi dinar. We saw that basically with our neighbors either devaluing their currencies or their currencies plummeting, whether that's in Syria, whether that's in Iran, whether that's in Turkey, we saw that imports were more competitive than locally made Iraqi products. And so one of the pros of devaluation is that you make local products more competitive. And so devaluation is a tool you use to make yourself more competitive. Number two, it's also something that you do to stretch your dollar as far as possible. Close to 94% of Iraq's income comes from oil, which is sold in U.S. dollars. Almost all of our expenses, however, are in Iraqi dinar. 
And so if we have increasing costs and either flat or decreasing income, then one of the solutions that you have uh, amongst you is to devalue your currency in order to cover the costs that you have. This also helps save the decreasing U.S. dollar reserves that Iraq has been spending in order to cover most of the budget deficits since 2019. And so the devaluation was a prudent move, in my opinion. Now, the subsequent debate that's taken over with regards to the devaluation of the dinar is really just politicking because one of the reports put out by the World Food Program in early March 2021 indicates that while the currency was devalued by 23%, the cost of the average food basket across Iraq's provinces only rose by an average of 8 percentage points, with a wide variation across provinces such as an increase by 31% in Baghdad and zero increase in Suleimania. And so the actual burden that is being carried by the average Iraqi is not as bad as the politicians are making it out to be. And so this begs the question, why has the Iraqi dinar devaluation become a rallying cry for so many political parties and blocs within parliament? Okay, I mean, yes, you mentioned the fact that it isn't economically at least as bad as some politicians want it to look like. But nevertheless, um, the prices did rise. And the question really is then, um, can we really reap the benefits of the devaluation of dinar given our current problems in governance and also political and economic circumstances? So what do you think, Ali? I mean, I think you can only reap the benefits of devaluation if devaluation is part of a broader package of reforms. And my concern is that we haven't seen any other significant measures, um, you know, like, for example, enhancing the business environment in Iraq um, to encourage the growth of the private sector um, and to boost production of local goods um, or indeed cutting, you know, wasteful spending. And so the worry is that we don't actually capitalize on the benefits of devaluation, but end up having to deal with all the downsides like inflation. And I also think that we really have to bear in mind that we are in a different fiscal climate now compared to when the decision to devaluate was taken. So Iraq was selling crude at $48 a barrel in December, whereas last month it averaged $63. Um, and the government isn't struggling as much as it was before to pay salaries. And I think that was the primary motivation for rushing towards an abrupt devaluation, which was that the government just didn't have enough cash that led to delays in paying salaries. Now, of course, devaluation does inflate the amount of dinars that you have at your disposal, but then that's offset by the fact that you have to spend more on social protection um, for the hardest hit and the most vulnerable, um, which is actually what you can see in the budget. So to be honest, I think there are good grounds to be skeptical of devaluation. And as you alluded to, it's clear that the initial decision was made by the government and supported by most of the political blocs when in fact it should have been a decision for the central bank to make. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to both of your arguments, it seems to me that uh, you both make valid points. But in general, I think the political elite in Iraq hasn't been really strategic about it anyway. In other words, I don't see any clear justifications for either exchange rates other than maybe political interests as opposed to economic benefits. But then there was one big issue that delayed the budget, and it's something that happens every year which is the KRG's share. There has been some deals over the years over how much the KRG's share in the budget is and what its obligations are. And again, in 2021, there has been another deal. So Ali, what was the deal this time? And more importantly, do you think it's going to be implemented? 
So as an outside observer, there's really very little reason for me to believe that this year will be the year when we see the KIG hand over the agreed volumes of oil in return for its full share of the budget. Um, and this is really just based on the fact that since 2014, we've had several iterations of this deal with almost zero compliance. And if oil prices continue to pick up, then you really have to wonder why the KIG would be inclined to comply this time around. Um, so. Article 11 starts off, as always, by talking about how there needs to be a thorough audit of the KIG's oil sales over the last decade or so. And there's also a provision that requires the KIG to hand over half of its customs revenues to the federal treasury. Um, there's no way that the KIG is going to open up its books to the Board of Supreme Audit. And there's also no precedent for the KIG to hand over customs revenues, um, which is another black hole. But this year, there is, I'd say, um, an implicit green light in the wording of the text for the carriage to independently uh, export a portion of their oil. Um, and this wasn't the case in previous deals. Now, of course, the wording of the text is always very cryptic and ambiguous. And this is something that we've become used to. And it's really a way for politicians on both sides of the aisle to save face and, you know, to be able to interpret the deal in a manner that really suits them. Um, but the deal says that the KIG should produce at least 460,000 barrels um, of oil a day, um, but then it can deduct expenses and also account for domestic consumption. And then it should hand over a minimum of 250,000 barrels a day. So for me, that's a change in the deal that I would say favours the KIG's position over the federal government's. Well, that brings me to the final question, which is there were huge delays in passing this budget. It took longer than it usually does, and the draft field was effectively rewritten. So Hassan, first, what does this say about the nature of Iraqi politics today? So this reminds me of a point I've been making since October 2018, when Adil Abdel Mahdi was nominated to become prime minister, which is that having an independent prime minister with no political bloc backing him in parliament is actually an awful idea and just leads to lame duck premiers who are unable to push any of their agenda items through the legislature, including the federal budget. And so Iraqi politics is as fractured as ever. And the only thing that brings the political elite to the kitchen is the opportunity to cut up the fiscal cake. What do you think, Ali? Yeah, so what I think is really clear about the whole budgetary process is that parliament, and by that I mean the political blocs, have completely taken control of fiscal policymaking. You know, the government tried multiple times to generate more revenues from income tax, and each time it was rebuffed by parliament. Um, but not only has it become really hard for the government to push through its legislative agenda, the scale of the fragmentation among the political blocs um, makes it really hard for the parliamentary system to function with any degree of coherence. And that's really something worth thinking about when we get closer to elections and then a new round of negotiations to form the next government. Okay, thank you very much, Hassan and Ali. This has been very informative. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to Iraqi Voices through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify and make sure you follow us on Twitter to get notified about new episodes of Iraqi Voices. Until next time, goodbye.